Please turn with me to today's scripture reading, which comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. You can also follow along on page 8 of your bulletin. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must, all, must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if you're new or visiting, we're closing out um, our series today on marriage. And uh, I'll be honest with you, it's a relief. This has probably been the most difficult uh, series uh, I've preached uh, since since we started the church, and um, so it's a bit of a relief for me for many reasons. Uh, and we've said that, basically what we've said is that we really need a biblical framework in understanding marriage because the modern way that we talk about love is practically counter to the Bible. Today we say, let's live together first. It's logical. I love you, you love me. Weddings, the wedding, that event, it's just an event. It's just a formality. This is what's real, what we've got here, how we feel. Sure, if love is a feeling. But it's not. It's not what the Bible says. Today, we're so drawn into how we feel. We look for how we feel. But the Bible says if the definition of love is mainly about how you feel, then your love is small. Your love is small because it's always changing. It's constantly conflicting with each other, and you're, and, you're, and you're constantly confused. A person who says, I love you, let's get married, loves you more than a person who says, I love you, but let's not get married yet. Let's live together a little bit. Let's sleep together a little bit. Let's kind of feel this out. Let's see what we're about. Let's not get married just now. Why? Because love is a commitment. That's what the Bible says. Because love is a covenant. That's what the Bible says. It's a promise to love no matter what. And as broken people, I mean, we need that. As broken people, we want that. But here's the problem. A lot of people, they don't get married at the same time because it's like, how can we be sure that this person is the one? It's because uh, you're relying on feelings. That's the modern thing to do when marriage is based on a promise. That's the biblical thing to do. We tend to say, well, I can't commit until I know when it's really you can't know until you commit. Now, a lot of preachers over the course of, I'm sure, long before myself and long after me, a lot of preachers will preach about the purpose of marriage and the power of marriage and the 
a priority of marriage and the partnership of marriage and, and the beauty of marriage, our roles, all those things, but none of that will ever make sense unless you see that beauty, the beauty of marriage, unless you see your view of marriage as a beautiful friendship. Two souls growing older together here on earth, but growing wiser and growing newer into eternity together. That means, that means your spouse has to be your best friend. Your spouse has to be your best friend. See, modern love, our modern view of marriage talks about feelings. And the traditional view of marriage is what? We said it's about commitment only, duty. Either way, you don't see marriage as the deepest and most intimate friendship, and that is what's biblical. Single folks, it's very normal to have good friends who may be of the opposite sex. They're gonna be honest with you. They're gonna be honest about themselves. Uh, they're gonna be able to share their heart with you. They're gonna be able to just be vulnerable with you. They understand you, they get you, but at the same time, when you look at them, they don't have the right physique. They don't have the right figure. They don't have the right pedigree or education or status. When you look at them, you say, well, they lack certain leadership skills. They, they lack a career path or direction. They, they lack earning potential, and so you're just not attracted to them. Look, I'm not saying that you have to marry uh, those people, but biblically, what I'm saying is that that person is probably a far better candidate than what you're overlooking them for. You see, when Adam met Eve, he didn't say, there she is, the person with the perfect body, the person with just the right body type. There's the person who's got skills that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna help me get to where I need to be, help me live the life that I want. No, that's not what he said. What he said was, this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. In other words, we are one. Being with you, I'm able to know more about myself. It makes me whole. You complete me. It's a lifelong friendship, a journey of friendship to the end. So there are three things we're going to look at as we close out this series today. We're going to look at the destination of that journey, the practice of that journey, and then the power, the fuel, the engine for that journey. The destination, the, the practice, and the power for that journey. First, we're going to look at the destination. You notice we got some new speakers because one of them died last week, uh, and uh, so we're, we're not using our, our, what is that called, the headset mics right now? So just bear with me. I'm still trying to adjust... Like I was so used to this, and I really pushed back against the headset, and now I'm pushing back against this, so it's kind of just bear with me. First, we're going to look at the destination. Uh, marriage is a oneness. Marriage is a oneness that comes through a mutual it's friendship, a mutual journey of faith towards that same glorious port of call, that same destination, that same uh, just radiant horizon. Let's, gonna, let's say this biblically. Marriage is a oneness through friendship. It's a oneness. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Why? To be united to his wife. United. The two will become one flesh. And this comes from a mutual journey of faith, a mutual journey of faith. Verses 21 to 25, you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a journey of faith. Wives to their husbands, and husbands love your wives, and give yourself up for your wives. In other words, it's a mutual journey. It's a mutual submission. It's a mutual journey of faith. And, and to the degree that you know Jesus, to the degree that you love Jesus, then you know how to be good, 
as a husband. Then you know how to be good as a wife. And it's towards a common destination, a common end point, a common end game. What is that? Verse 26, holiness. Cleansing by washing with water through the word. Verse 27, being presented as a radiant church, without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish, holy and blameless. This is it. That's what it is. Today, we have a very, very low view of marriage. We have a very, very low bar for marriage. But not Jesus, not the Apostle Paul. Every part of marriage, as the Apostle Paul is reflecting, every part of marriage points to, it reminds Paul of the gospel, and so he's got the highest view of marriage. See, if you marry a non-Christian, you can have a decent marriage, I suppose, but it's like being in a football game where you're just running three yards each play. Ever watch a game like that? We're just running three yards each play, the entire game. Up three yards, back one yard. Up three yards, back two yards. And just inching your way, inching your way to the end. It's a, it's a game, yeah, I suppose. It's like driving a German car, but you're just in second gear. You didn't realize that you were just in second gear the entire ride. I mean, it may feel good once in a while. It's nice to be in that car once in a while, but you've got no idea. You've got no idea. It's like writing a song, but you're only using three notes out of the eight. The Apostle Paul is going back and forth between the wife and Christ, between the husband and Jesus. Back and forth. Why? That's the horizon. That's the horizon. That's the journey. To where? I mean, if image bearing is the purpose, then the destination is what? What's the end game? It's Jesus, his radiance, his beauty, his glory. And marriage is designed for the wife and the, ho- the husband to offer themselves up to one another uh, in, in very, very unique ways with very unique roles to cleanse each other through the word of God towards that radiance, towards that destination. You see, it starts with friendship when you're single. Some of you take great responsibility to do that in your friendships. It's a wonderful thing. You're practicing already. You don't even realize that. And, and marriage is like that. But marriage is like that if you're a Tesla owner in ludicrous mode. You're like you've got a warp speed engine. You're in hyperdrive. One day, God is going to look at you. If you're a Christian, God is going to look at you. He's going to look at us and he's going to say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servants. You made it. You submitted to one another. You sacrificed for each other. You confronted one another. You shaped one another through my word. You've loved one another. And now look at you. You are radiant. You are beautiful. Before you were just broken images of me, but now you are without wrinkle, without blemish. You are holy and you are blameless. And I've made you perfect in the image of my son. Marriage is a deep oneness that comes from journeying together. Friendship. Journeying together towards holiness. That radiant beauty. And that's why after years, even after decades of marriage, when the looks and the feelings have in some ways, uh, those initial childish feelings have gone away, those feelings deepen and grow and strengthen. It's because you see that underlying radiance. You see that destination that you've been chasing all your life, and you're nurturing yourselves. You're nurturing one another into that radiance all your lives. It's a beautiful, beautiful intimacy and relationship. Romance is not the vehicle. It's not the engine. It's not the fuel. Friendship, 
that mutual journey of faith. That's the means. You see that? Well, how do you practice it? That's the second point. How do you practice this? How do you do this? How do you do real friendship? Verse 26, you cleanse each other by the washing with water through the word of God. And verse 28 and 29, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it. He cares for it. In other words, there's a cleansing. There's a feeding. There's a nourishing. Every good friendship has all three. What does that mean? Think about what it means to clean your body. Think about what it means to to brush your teeth. Think about what it means to go to the bathroom. In each case, there's a release, right? You need to clean. You need to wipe. You need to deal with the outside because there are blemishes. But think about this. Cleansing, it's one of the most private things you can do because most of the time, you're used to doing it alone. You do it by yourself. When you feed, when you eat, you feed yourself. As adults, you tend to care for yourselves. What's the Bible saying? Those all-important things that you're so used to doing alone, you're so used to doing by yourself, you need a friend. You need community. You need real community, the deepest community. And, and, And that's more important than your wealth. Your wealth can only get you so far. That's more important in your career and its path. It's only going to get you so far. To be more radiant, to be nourished in it, to reach a greater potential than you could ever dream. Now, how do you practice that? There's a lot here. We're going to go pretty quickly. I'm going to give you seven things very quickly. One, friends give you access to the most private parts of your life. Verse 25, you give yourself up. If you're not using each other to fill a void and you're not exploiting each other because you're looking for completion without that commitment, then it becomes a much safer relationship, much safer to open yourself up emotionally and socially, relationally, all those hurts, all those joys, lots of exposure until one day you want to you wanna expose yourself, you want to make yourself vulnerable in every legal capacity, then you become vulnerable physically and sexually in, in every way. If you ever help to clean anyone, I mean couples, I mean parents and couples, you would understand this, very private. You can get really messy in the process. So if you avoid messiness, if you don't like that, if you're, if you're disgusted by discomfort, then you're probably not a good friend. And you're, you're not going to be a very good spouse. Because your spouse is your best friend. A spouse looks at you in all your filth and all your mess and all your dirtiness and says, I want to do this for you. Single folks, that means, look, we all need a friend that gets so close and it's got so much access and so much, they just get in there. And that can hurt. That can hurt, but, but you trust them because they are helping you cleanse those hard-to-reach spots in your life, in those areas. Do you have that? You see, we're, we're, we're oftentimes putting the cart before the horse. We want the intimacy, and we want the, the thrill of relationship without the responsibility and the commitment of that type of relationship. How do you practice that? You practice that in friendship. Do you have that? Are you committed to that? Because if you do, it can lead you to a beautiful friendship. If you avoid that kind of transparency, that kind of visibility, that kind of exposure, you're likely then either using each other when you're lonely Right? Or you only want friendship on, on your own terms. Secondly, you do this with your presence. Verse 25, you give yourself up. Friends see all sides of you. They see all sides of you because they're present. When you're free to let your hair down in those unfiltered moments, you see professionals, they can only see you in snapshots. And most of the time, you're going to be filtered. 
But friends, they see you when you're unfiltered. And they can speak into you at all times. And they can speak into you everywhere. Three, that implies consistency. On the phone, through text, in person, everywhere, anytime. Fourthly, that means that friends are going to be honest with you and they're going to be honest about you. And fifth, they're, but they're at their best when they're gentle with you. Verse 26, it's cleansing with water through the word. You know what? Water can be extremely powerful. It's a cleansing agent, and yet it's gentle. It can, if you abuse it, oh, it can drown you. But when you recognize its power and you recognize its benefit and you're, you're self-controlled in your use, it could be gentle and cleansing at the same time. When you're cleaning, you know, once in a while, uh, you need to scrub. But if you scrub all the time, I mean, it's going to do the job. You may rid yourself of dirt. You may rid yourself of the mess. But you're also going to rid yourself of skin. You're going to hurt yourself. You see that? You're going to lose part of yourself. So you need to point out your sins, but you need to be gentler. You need to point out the sins of your friends, but you need to be gentler. You need to be accountable. You need to be firm. But you also need to heal. Water refreshes and water heals as it cleans. Six, verse 29, feeding one another, caring for one another. In other words, you don't just clean, but you feed and you nourish one another. That means on one hand, Jesus feeds us through his word. That's a challenge. We we challenge one another, but he also adores you and cherishes you. He cherishes his bride. Look, if your best friend, if your spouse says, you're a broken person. You need to change. You need to grow in this area. There's lots of power there when you're hearing it. The closer, the more intimate that friend is, and spouses are the closest and the most intimate, there's much more power there to shape you and change you in a sense. But on the other hand, if you feel like the world says you're ugly, if you feel like you know, the world says you're worthless, but your best friend, especially your spouse, says no, you remember you are radiant. There is a radiant destination, a radiant, glorious destination, and you are going there, and I see it in you, and you know that person means it. There's no greater power than that. It's got a way of completely undoing any accusation, any verdict that you've placed on yourself. By the way, this is why we're often so desperate to find that one person in our lives. It's why relationships can be an idol. Even after marriage, relationships, especially after marriage, uh, after your wedding, it can be an idol. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you have Jacob. Jacob is a cheater, a liar. His name means deceiver. And so he's running from his family. He's cheated his brother out of, a, out of, out of the blessing of God, so to speak. But then he meets Rachel, and Rachel is beautiful, and she is pure, and he just needs Rachel. Why? Because if I have that one most beautiful person in my life telling me that she's committed to me, telling me that she loves me, then I will be okay. It's going to undo all the self-loathing. It's going to undo all the shame. That's what we think about when we think about getting married. You see that? So you need to be careful. Lastly, verse 29, you feed and you nourish. You feed and you care for one another. So real love is affectionate. We can say that I love you. We can say, I miss you. We can say that you are special, the most special to me. 
We reserve that for the best of our friends. That's what we do. Uh, and if you have a good friend, but you can't do that, you're probably not a good friend to that person. Now, <clears throat> I've said a lot. I'm going to give you a couple cautions. One, if friendships have that kind of beauty, if they have that kind of power, it's like a fire. It can easily be mishandled. It can easily get out of control. You can easily get hurt. So you shouldn't be vulnerable to just anyone and everyone, right? You need to enter into friendships, especially between a man and a woman, with great care, even, if, even more so than your same-gender relationships. Because that, that power, because of that power to go to that next level, that next level of vulnerability and openness, it can spin out of control. So if you really care for a person, and if you know, you're interested in that person, you're going to be responsible in that relationship all the way into marriage. You need to be careful who you enter into relationships with. You need to discern. You need to take time because it takes time. Friendships require discipline or else you're not really a good friend. If you don't think that you need, be, you need more discipline in your relationships, you're probably not a good friend. And if you take the time, and if you do take the discipline to do that, and you have the kind of friend who's a member of the opposite sex, biblically, in a sense, you've probably never been closer to dating, in a sense. And you're like, well, that would be so weird, we say. Not if you're that close. Not if you're that close. Now, you may not be dating, and I'm not saying that you have to date, but you're definitely in a stage where you probably can consider that person. When you're able to say, I really get you, and you really get me, I know you, and you know me, hey, I need to address this about you because you're messy here, and, and, uh, and this dishonors God. It doesn't point you to that destination. We're all on a journey spiritually. We're all heading to that end destination. And the more intimate that relationship, the, the more intimately we're journeying, journeying together, and there's openness, and there's vulnerability there, that really is the first stage of dating. That really is. Biblically, in a sense, obviously, there are more definers in a relationship, more definers in a relationship or a dating relationship than that, um, but there's not much more. It's really the first stage of completing one another. Secondly, single folks, here's how dating is done today. Now, you've got to listen to me. This is how dating is often done today, sadly, even in the church. Uh, I'm not picking on anyone in particular here. I want to caveat this, so calm down, okay, as you listen to this. Um, let's say you're new to the church, and you're connecting with people. There's like 10 people in a room, and you gather there. There's 10 men. You kind of, there's 10 single men. There's 10 single women in the room. What do you do? Right off the bat, you don't even think about seven of them. You've ruled them out. Why? Because they got the wrong looks. It's sad. They got the wrong looks, the wrong education wrong salary, the wrong earning potential. So your brain kind of recalculates, does complex math, 10 minus seven, there's three left, right? Hmm, three people, right? The next time you meet, what do you do? You start to talk to them. Then you text. And now you're in this vacuum and you start becoming naked with them in a sense because you're becoming vulnerable before you become naked really with your own friends about that relationship. What's the problem? You're starting with romance. And then they come to me and they say, well, pastor, we want a Christian relationship. We want to be gospel-centered. When from the beginning, you did the opposite of what the Bible's really been saying to you. You ruled out everyone, including people, some who may actually become good potential friends for you. And you've only made friends with the types that you want as your spouse. That's not a real friendship. 
That's a fake friendship. That's an agenda-driven friendship. You are already using the church, that's called sacrilege, and you're using friendship as a means to get intimacy, a means when friendship is the destination. That is the journey. You see that? Now, it doesn't mean be friends with everybody. It doesn't mean be friends with anyone. Well, now I'm going to just open up. There are 10 people now. That's not what it means, right? It means you need to ask questions throughout your friendship, apart from how you feel. You need to control your feelings. Be mindful of your feelings, young Jedi. <laughs> Does that person share a common understanding of sin? Does that person uh, share a common understanding of grace? Does that person share a common understanding of the gospel? Does that person under understand or share a common desire to be intimate with God, to relate with God, to connect with Jesus over and over and over? How do you know? It takes time. Lots of time. Don't just use those questions as a checklist, but observe. You have eyes. You do that with everything else. We are, live in the most researched society in America. We research everything. And yet, when it comes to the most important thing, the most important relationship in our lives, we just go with it. Is that wise? I'm not asking you to be illogical. I'm asking you to think. I'm asking you to be logical. Observe the fruit of character, and that takes time. Fruit, you plant it. It takes a while. You water it, and you look foolish. You're just kind of pouring water on the ground for a long time. What happens? Because it doesn't grow overnight. Are there common values? In what ways is the gospel uh, really becoming applied in this person's life? Do they take repentance seriously? Does a person share common passions and a vision in life? Is there a common destination? Or are you heading to different ports? Do you share common worldly ambitions or a common desire for holiness? What about, you know, we tend to, what about shared interests? Doesn't that play a factor? Don't use that as the gate because then it's just bait. Lastly, uh, this is going to be a little tough for some of you to hear. But based on everything we've just said, a Christian can't marry a non-Christian. Why? Dear friends. Dear, dear friends. Because of the biblical definition of what makes a marriage beautiful to a Christian, it's impossible among those who don't know Jesus. Impossible. Why? because you don't have a common destination. You don't have a common radiant horizon. So what you're effectively doing is you're pushing Jesus to the periphery of your life, to the suburbs of your heart. You know, maybe uh, uh, in doing this or maybe because of the relationship when really Christ is supposed to be downtown in your heart, central to your life. And because your immediate, your immediate oneness with your spouse is the priority in your life, it's immediate, it's urgent, Jesus is all the more going to be pushed to the periphery. And so even if you have a good marriage, you're just running three yards. No matter how good, no matter how difficult, you're just running three yards. You're really just driving in second gear again without a mutual destination. So where do you get the power to live that kind of committed life? Where do you get the power to, to have that worth speed engine in your marriage? Jesus says, greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ, he is the ultimate friend.
We talk about access and vulnerability, presence and consistency, honesty, feeding, caring for one another, nourishing one another, affectionate affections toward one another. Jesus is the best of all those things. He's the ultimate friend. Look at Jesus. Look at his sacrifice. Look at his selflessness. He's always serving to the end. And so even though he's about to be betrayed, what does he do? He, he joins his closest friends to a dinner. And what, is that, what's, what would you do as you're preparing for your death? You can assume that what Jesus does and what he says before he's about to die, before he's arrested, before he goes to the cross, before he dies, that's probably going to be the most important message and the most important thing that he will do. What does he do? You know what he does? He washes his disciples' feet. He serves him. He submits himself to them. Even Judas, the betrayer, to the end, you know what he's doing? He's extending that opportunity for access. He's being vulnerable. He's being present. He's being consistent. He's being honest. He tells Judas, whatever you're about to do, do it quickly. He knows. And yet he's so gentle, none of the other disciples even knew. To the end, he's literally feeding his friends. He's caring for his friends. He's praying for his friends. He's teaching his friends. He's not sitting there and saying, guys, do you know I'm about to die? Where are you for me? All these ways that you failed me. No. He's thinking for them. I want you to be one. I'm not going to be here with you. I want you to be one. He observes the Passover with them. He institutes the Lord's Supper for them. He reminds them of his presence over and over in his life, his consistent, intimate presence. He's constantly feeding his friends, constantly caring for his friends. John chapter 17, that's the high priestly prayer of Jesus to the end as he's preparing to be arrested and executed. He's thinking for those he loves. Look at the befriending grace of Jesus. Look at the befriending love of Jesus. That's the only love that will truly cleanse you. That's the only love that will ever complete you. What are you looking for to complete you? Jesus is not attracted to you because of your looks or because of your education or because of your status or because of your wealth potential. So he touches the leper and he speaks to the outcast and he stands before the woman who's brought before the Pharisees naked and caught in the act of adultery. He comes into your life and he confronts you and yet only to heal you. And he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? Lays his life down for a sheep. And he did. And he did. On the cross, Jesus Christ looks to the Father. That is the most intimate relationship that he's ever known, that he has, the center of his life, downtown and central in his life, which all of our friendships, with all of our marriages point to, and he cries out what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying is there now, I am in need. I am broken. I am thirsting and hungry. I am bleeding and dying. I, yet there's no food. There's no one here to feed me. No one here is going to care for me. No one here is going to nourish me. No one here can save me. I've lost the Father. I've lost the Father, and because I've lost the Father, I'm suffering the ultimate separation, the ultimate incompletion. This is my Father, my best friend, ultimate oneness. He has now forsaken me, and now I'm alone, utterly and ultimately alone. I have no access. God's presence is no longer with me, so he is absent from me. The wrath of God is pouring out on me. The mess of sin, the ugliness of sin is on me, and there's no one to cleanse me. And so I'm withering away, 
thirsting for the Father. Why? Why? Jesus Christ lost access so we can have ultimate access. He lost the presence of God so we could be reconciled in the presence of God. Jesus Christ was vulnerable and he was stripped naked and he became sin. Why? So that we could be covered in his righteousness. He received the wrath of God on the cross. Why? So we can receive the gentleness. The gentleness. Even though the power of the resurrection, we can get the gentleness of God. He cries out, I thirst. I thirst. He's crying out for God. So that we can receive the feeding, washing with water through the word, the cleansing care of God. Jesus Christ lost the affirmation of the Father. Do you know when he was baptized and he's plunged into the water, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God descended on him like a dove and the heavens opened up, tore open, the Bible says, and God is looking at his son, doting at his son, saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And yet he lost the affirmation of God on the cross. Why? So that God can look at you and say, you are my child with whom I am well pleased. He lays down his life for his friend. And that makes him our best friend. That makes him the perfect bridegroom. The cross becomes our cleansing. The blood of Jesus purifies us. Christ and his cross is our affirmation. He endured the cross for you. Here's that one person that we have been looking for, searching for, craving, desiring, the most beautiful person in the world, telling you every time you look at the cross, You, in me, are made whole. You are perfect. That is your radiant glory. That is our mutual horizon. And we are on this journey together. Union with Christ. How do you get over any accusation in your life, true or untrue? How do you get over any trial in your life, just or unjust? Jesus was arrested for you. Jesus went to trial for you. Jesus suffered the ultimate injustice for you. Jesus received the most terrible verdict for you. He is the ultimate hero. All those wonderful movies that we watch, those romantic movies where the hero stands in the way and and submits himself for the sake of his, the beautiful damsel in distress, we say. But we're not that beautiful. And yet Jesus comes forward and says, I will go. I will suffer. I will bleed. I will die for you, my bride. It's the ultimate love story. So we will be justified in him. He is our best friend. Couples, you need to feed each other. And you need to nourish each other. Don't just affirm one another. Challenge one another. That's your responsibility. Don't just challenge one another. Cherish each other. That's your responsibility. Become friends. Even now, best friends. If you're single, stop looking to a spouse. And you're already doing that because you're looking to your friend as your savior. That person, I need this relationship to be good. That's going to give me a sense of worth. It's going to make me feel acceptable. It's going to fulfill my desires. The gospel enables you to actually become that friend that you desire. Otherwise, if you're looking for worth, a type of worth that only Jesus Christ can give, then that loneliness, that singleness, it will devastate you. It will devastate you because you're not complete in Jesus. 
couples, if that's what you went into marriage with and you expected that, then it's going to be devastating when your spouse fails you and he will and she will. And if you just hinge on that, oh, it's going to ruin your marriage. Look to Jesus and remember that love. Your marriage, your partnerships, your friendships, they're just pointers to that. Now, lastly, some of you are still exploring what it means to be a Christian, and you're here. You need Jesus, not just as your God, not just as your Savior, but as your lover, your ultimate lover, your best friend. That's what it means to be a Christian, in a sense. That's going to transform your life. It's going to transform your heart, your soul. Because if you don't, then you're going to make a God out of all the lovers in your life. And that's going to, you're going to give yourself physically and emotionally and socially with a lot of pain. Jesus Christ is the lover that you need. He's the lover that you need. And this then, well, this marks the end of our series. And the Apostle Paul says it's a profound mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. It's a beautiful, it's an incredible beauty. But I'm talking about Christ and his church. Let's pray together.